Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 10th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. The election is over, the midterms are over, and it doesn't seem as if, at least for the moment, there's going to be another civil war in America. Everyone seems to be quite peaceful and civilized in a surprising sense. It's good news. But of course, the first civil war happened in America. There's no doubt about that. A couple of weeks ago, we did a show with the uh, South Africa-based uh, historian Adam Mendelssohn on what it was like to be a Jew in Lincoln's Civil War Army has an interesting new book, Jewish Soldiers in the Civil War, the Union Army. I think it's probably pretty miserable, no more or less miserable for Jewish soldiers than anyone else. The Civil War was awful, catastrophic, tragic on many different fronts. Uh, we've done other shows on the political dimension. We did one with David Reynolds, the very distinguished biographer of uh, Abraham Lincoln. He has uh, a book out, Abe. Uh, which has won a number of awards. What we haven't done, though, when it comes to the Civil War, uh, is talk about spies and the spying aspect of the war, which took up um, a great deal of attention and energy on both sides. Uh, today, we are talking about spies. The Lion and the Fox is uh, a book that's coming out at the beginning of December by my guest, Alexander Rose, very distinguished 19th century historian. Uh, two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Army. Uh, it's a wonderful drama taking place in the United Kingdom, mostly uh, in the uh, Atlantic port of Liverpool. Alexander is joining us from New York today. Alexander, congratulations on the new book. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Alex, you're, uh, you've, you've written a number of books. Many people will be familiar uh, with your best-selling book, Washington Spies, the story of America's first spy ring. Why'd you choose this story? It's an interesting story, um, but it, obviously anyone undergoing a book, any author knows it's an enormous amount of work and effort and investment of time and energy and resources. Why this book? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, I actually had the idea for The Lion and the Fox about uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And, uh, you know, I put it aside, you know, you, you, when you're a writer, you tend to think of ideas and you, you know, write out a note or two and you stick them in a file somewhere. Um, and I was, uh, you know, and I put it away because one reason was I couldn't, I couldn't break the story. I couldn't, it's such a com complex uh, story with so many sort of Byzantine twists and turns in it and so on. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't work out how to, how to tell it without writing some 900 page unreadable tome um and it, it finally i finally got round to it again a couple of years ago and uh you know i figured out how to do it and it was actually quite easy you know the the, the actual structure and it, it's just based on uh you know sort of three phases of the um of, of the effort to build a, a secret confederate navy in in the united kingdom during the civil war and it was really just going to be i don't know if you remember it the uh uh the old uh, mad magazine strip uh, spy versus spy so i had 
you know, a, a Union spy and I had a Confederate spy and they were both going to face off against each other and, and, and you know, just do spy versus spy, um, you know, sort of Tom and Jerry like almost. And, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, one of them was the Confederate was obviously there to his mission was to commission or build or acquire a, a Confederate Navy. And the, the mission of the Union uh, agent was to stop him. So one, you know, once once you ha once I had that, everything began to to click into place, and it was it was actually a you know a very fast book to write. It's also quite <laughs> quite short, uh, which helps a lot. Um, yeah, healthily yeah. short, Alex. We don't as we don't want nine hundred page tomes. No, no, no. I certainly don't. I barely have time to write to read nine page tomes. There were nine hundred pages, <laughs> unless now Andrew Mayer was on the show recently as a, a nine hundred. Uh, page book out but maybe that's justified so before we get to the lion and the fox the two rival spies uh, that you cover in the book give us the background um on the civil war because of course while you're a maven not everybody else is give us the necessary details to make sense of this this spying endeavor, this attempt to build a Confederate Navy and the role of the uh, of Great Britain in, in, in the Civil War, both sides trying to uh, get on Britain's best side. Uh, yeah, well, you know, in a nutshell, there's quite a lot there, uh, but I'll, uh, you know, essentially, um, Britain was neutral. It had declared its neutrality at the very beginning of the war uh, and basically said, look, we don't, we don't want to cast stones here. Yes, Albion, Alex. We're always neutral, what? but we're never neutral, right? Well, yeah, they kind of just wanted to wait until the dust settled and then, you know, get on the winner's side, which is the usual way of doing these things. And, um, you know, just that, stay I, out I, of it. Jumping in, Alex, here, you know a million times more about this than I do, but um, is that entirely fair? I mean, there were people in Britain in the 19th century who felt very strongly, particularly on the issue of slavery. So it's not just a matter of perfidious Albion, is it? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, it is from the government point of view. Uh, they're the guys running the country. I mean, Russell and uh, and, and so on, the, the foreign secretary are basically saying this for God, and there's a quote in the book, basically saying, for God's sake, let's just stay out of this. Um, I mean, they basically thought it was one another one of their, uh, you know, rancorous, colonial yeah, they had a bit of a record in north america probably best not to uh, get embroiled again right yeah you never know what they're like or what they're going to do um i think well, i think one of the one of the, it's in the book one of the russell says someone says these people are like mad dogs you can't talk sense to them um you know because they were when they were trying to uh, cobble together a, some kind of peace agreement between the, or an armistice between the two sides um, but, you know, I, I, where I would say is that there were quite a few people who did indeed want Britain to intervene in the Civil War, um, but uh, not for any reasons of slavery. It was because they were extremely pro-Confederate. Uh, there was a very large Anglo-Confederate uh, block in the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and just generally, I mean, mo most they of them... Were all, uh, they were all followers of King Cotton, I assume, the, most of the Confederate people. Oh, yeah. I mean, Liverpool, where the, the book takes place, was, you know, the mightiest port city in the world. You know, I think it made, built more ships per year than the rest of the world combined. But it was based on cotton. Um, and, it, you know, these ha it had these trading links and social links going back a century to, to you know, uh, to what, what had been, I guess, the United States. Um, 
so yes, I mean, Liverpool is essentially a Confederate fortress. One of the, the, the Confederate spy uh, goes over there in 1861 and he's, he sort of says in a letter, oh, it's amazing. There's all this Confederate bunting around. There's more, there's more rebel flags here than there are actually in Richmond. Uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. So there was actually a very weak union or pro-abolitionist um, you know, uh, uh, sort of faction within Britain. Um, and so in you know the book I trace that you know that this it's evolution over the over the course of the war. Yeah, know, let's, let, let's just remind ourselves of the geopolitical uh background here. I mean, Britain in the middle of the 19th century was the dominant world power, and of course it dominated the Atlantic, it was a naval power. Was Britain's power primarily in terms of the Civil War? Um, a naval one was that the core issue in terms of trying to win over Britain to your to, to the Confederacy or to the unions? Uh, yes, I mean Britain had command of the ocean. It commanded. It commanded the the you know the, the world. It was the most powerful ship uh, ship uh, ship construction had the most powerful you know navy. It was everything like that. Um, its entire empire depends on trade. Uh, you know cotton with. Uh, you know, the South, um, yeah, a text and ex re-exporting textiles and so forth to India and, and, and all that and Egypt and so forth. Um, so yes, so to the British, it's the most important thing is to keep the sea lanes open and to have trade with, with the North and the South. Uh, what the British didn't like was that they always regarded Lincoln as a tariff man uh, who's, uh, you know, who was always trying to uh, tax their goods. And so there was, again, part of the natural link, whereas the, the Southerners to, to the British state of mind were, were good, good, solid free traders, um, you know, very, very, very keen to trade cotton uh, for cash. So, you know, they, that again, that itself lends itself to a, you know, more sympathetic. Um, and just uh, to fill in the background in terms of the Civil War itself, the North establishes a naval blockade. So I yep. assume that that's uh, that's critical in terms of, in, in particular, what the Confederate spy in Britain was trying to break politically. Yeah, that was that was the entire intent of uh, of, of, of the the effort. Um, for the South, he was sent over. You know, the the, the Confederate his name was uh, Bullock, by the way. I uh, was sent over because James Dunwoody Bullock, to be precise, eighteen twenty three to nineteen oh one. At least according to Wikipedia, which knows everything, the Confederacy's chief foreign agent in Great Britain. Uh, yeah, I got it right, I guess. He also has a very fine set of uh, uh, mustaches and whiskers there. Um, very 19th century gentleman. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, for the South, yeah, it was Lincoln's blockade of three or 4,000 miles of coastline um, in order to try and slowly strangle the South, you see. Uh, which the British, of course, didn't like because it was holding up their exports and imports uh, to to either to you know to the south, and they had a, you know they had a great deal of money. Uh, I think it was the Economist magazine which said that in the in about 1861, the Britain was so dependent on these cotton imports that if they stopped, the you know half the country. I think it was about uh, they say one fifth of the British population uh, in 1860 was directly or indirectly. Um, dependent on the cotton trade in one way or another in Britain. So cotton was was a gigantic piece of the of GDP. Um, so Lincoln's blockade is a serious threat to the continuation of that. 
But could, um, in terms of naval power, given that Britain was the dominant naval power in the world, yep. um, the, the British could break the blockade if they chose to, couldn't they? If they'd wanted to, they could have broken it within about 30 seconds. Uh, but the fact is, is that they, again, they want to see, uh, you know, what's going to happen. And secondly, you, you know, you don't want to get involved in a war with the North. I mean, it is still a power. And more to the point, um, Lincoln was, and uh, Soward and people like that were in such ornery moods that it was very easy for them, as they threatened to do on several occasions, to just invade Canada, which was a, of course, a British possession. Um, so, you know, you don't want to tangle with Washington. It's, it's, not, it's not some sort of little country you can just kick around. Uh, so there's many, many considerations, strategic and military and economic and, and geographic, uh, geopolitical, that have to be taken into account about British responses. And the broader geopolitical uh, dimension, this, uh, the picture, uh, Alex, mm -hmm. certainly the first time around in the, the War of Independence, the French and the Spanish played an important part in the narrative. What were the other European powers' role or lack of role in the drama that was unfolding in America? Uh, well, France under Napoleon III was, again, very pro-Southern, but it never, it, ne it never, despite being a lot of, of diplomatic efforts by the Confederate, by the Confederates, um, it never came in uh, on the on the southern side, it always stayed out of it. Why again, was Napoleon the third so pro south? I'm sorry. Why was sorry? Napoleon the third so pro southern, so pro Confederate? Uh, well, I think part of it is again economic, and secondly, I think I do think there's there's an element of uh, romanticism, and this again this this affected the British as well in many cases. There's a kind of a um, you know, an idea that the that, they, that these poor oppressed Southerners are being uh, kicked around and oppressed by the tyrant Lincoln, um, <laughs> and you know we need to stand up for them. These great underdogs struggling for independence. Um, a counter to that, of course, the British and the French, for that matter, have imperial considerations in that if you back a rebel government breaking away from central authority, Washington then, you know, why can't uh, your Caribbean and African possessions do the same thing? Uh, so again, again, part of a consideration about not coming in, despite these, you know, th these... You, know, you brought up the Economist magazine, which was founded in the middle of the 19th century on free trade principles, but it's yep. always been a classically liberal uh, publication. What about the issue, I've talked about this before, what about the issue of slavery in terms of its impact on governments in Europe, in the United Kingdom and in France? Surely it had some impact. Uh, yes. Uh, in the, again, it's, it's like with Lincoln's thinking about abolitionism and slavery and so on. These things go undergo shifts. It's not, it's not a sort of a binary off-on type situation. I don't think, I can't think of really anyone in Britain, you know, really who was sort of openly, hey, slavery's great. We ought to introduce it here again. Um, nobody, nobody's in favor. They kind of just assume, well, it'll, you know, eventually the Southerners will get civilized and, you know, sort of get rid of this thing. Uh, in the meantime, we really need that cotton. We need hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bales of cotton each year to feed our factories and our workers. Otherwise, we're going to be on the chopping block. Uh, as, as happened during the French Revolution, which wasn't so long ago. Um, 
so you know there's there's that as there's that aspect to it um but at the same time and as i trace in the book so slavery really doesn't pay it isn't isn't a big consideration in britain it's it, Ab british abolitionism is there it's usually religiously based uh, usually dissenters um but it's quite weak and what changes it and what helps immeasurably the union agent who has been on his back foot this whole time in Britain, he's been struggling, sort of kicking against the pricks uh, in London who are all, well, you know, we don't want to, to annoy our Confederate friends, um, is that, you know, is the Emancipation Proclamation of, of Lincoln in, in late 1862, which is due to come into force in, I think, January 1863. Once that happens, there is a, a there is, it's quite extraordinary. There is a, a, a huge moral, um, revolution or, or transformation in, 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 in British public opinion, not politics exactly, but public opinion. Uh, I mean, I trace the number of abolitionist meetings that happened before the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. And it was just, you know, there's a couple, like two or three here and there every so often in small little halls, you know, little church halls somewhere. Um, after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, even in Liverpool, as Dudley, the union agent writes home he says you know there was a we, we were in the grand hall of liverpool there was thousands of people there all cheering on the name of lincoln so again this is a huge shift in british thinking and it, it takes place over just over a couple of months and it's quite an extraordinary thing uh what happens and, and it's at that point that the, sh the tide of the war shifts so let's um, get to your two spies the lion and the fox at the heart of the book um we already talked about uh, James Bullock with his remarkable uh, side whiskers. And uh, as you mentioned, Thomas Dudley, uh, who, uh, who was uh, the unionist spy. Who is the lion and who's the fox? Uh, good question. The, um, the, the lion uh, is, is Dudley. I mean, Dudley from a very early age. I mean, he was a Quaker lawyer, built, you know, built himself up by his bootstraps kind of thing. Uh, from rural New Jersey, very strong uh, Lincoln Republican and abolitionist from a very young age. You know, actually went down to the South when this, you know, in the 1840s and 50s to go on sort of slave rescue missions and bring them back across the border. Uh, the Mason-Dixon line, sorry. Um, so he's the line. I mean, he always, he, he never wavered in this. The fox is, is a Bullock, who had this kind of designedly aristocratic kind of, uh, louche, charming, very, very clever and cunning, very subtle-minded uh, type of type of attitude in which he, you know, he just sort of snaked his way towards his goal. He sort of he's he royalty. Like his half sister crack. was the mother of uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, so really, yeah, yeah. he's he's the classic American aristocrat. Uh, yeah, he he himself wasn't rich. He, I mean, he didn't. He didn't inherit anything. He never he never owned slaves. Um, but he again he I, it was I think his uh, if I correct his his mother or his stepmother sister married into the Roosevelt. So yeah, that's how they kind of went. So, uh, the, the subtitle of the book, Alex, is the two rival spies and the secret plot to build a Confederate army. Is this what Bullock's mission in Liverpool was to figure out how? The Confederates could build a navy. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, at the beginning, he was, you know, he was sent over by uh, 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 by the um, Secretary of, of the Navy, 
um, the Confederate one, and he goes over and he's sort who, of who was out. that? Who was the Secretary of the Navy? Um, uh, I, I've got a terrible memory. I sh um, oh, uh, one of your viewers is going to know this. It's it's very obvious. Uh, Mallory, sorry, uh, Mallory is the Secretary of the Navy, and that was and, a sort of wishful thinking on the part of the Confederacy because they didn't have a navy. Well, exactly. I think they had at the beginning of the war they had precisely one blue water ship. So they had a lot to to to, to build up. That said, the the Union Navy, uh, you know, which which was sort of a, the rump of the what had been the United States Navy, wasn't very powerful either. I mean, it was it had you know a dozen, you know, pretty old frigates and all that kind of thing. You're in the, also in the middle of a technological transition from steam uh, from sail to steam as well. Yeah, which is in the um, long term very important. So, yeah. so, so Bullock is sent over by. The Confederate Secretary of the Navy, which they didn't have a navy, to what? To to, to how was he going to do this? Did they have money? Was it a, a conspiracy? Was it an alliance? Uh, yeah, it was essentially. Again, it, it was one of these plans that started off really simple, and that is, we're going to give you lots and lots of money, and you're going to go to Liverpool, and you're just going to buy a bunch of ships and commission some ironclads and commerce raiders and that kind of thing. That's what you're going to do. It's really it should be easy. Britain is friendly territory. Liverpool is super friendly. You're not going to have any problems. The problem is, is that while he's on the boat over to Liverpool, uh, Lincoln declares the blockade. Britain declares neutrality, which really surprised them. Um, so Bullock is now, the minute he gets off the boat, Bullock's got to uh, work within uh, confines. He's got obstacles in front of him that he wasn't supposed to have. Um, this is supposed to be kind of a quick in and out, be there for six months, go home kind of thing. Um, and also the worst of all is that the, you know, the, uh, the Confederate treasury has, you know, basically no money either. I mean, it had virtually nothing. So the money doesn't rise. So what they have to do is they have to set up, um, uh, you know, basically a cotton smuggling and gun running scheme with uh, the head of a, uh, of a, of a, of a, a Confederate bank uh, co cotton trader called um, Fraser Trenum, which is the name of the, of the company. The guy who runs it in Liverpool is a guy called Charles Prelo from South Carolina. And together he and Bullock come up with this way of smuggling cotton and guns and so forth through the blockade in order to raise money to build, to buy these ships and commission these ships. So that, that's essentially how it works. We got very complicated uh, as the war went on, but he, Bullock was always um, under-resourced so that's one of the reasons he had to be so sort of crab-like towards reaching his goal. What about the, I mean, the Confederates were notoriously badly organized and managed, and of course, lacking a lot of central authority. Um, what was the cha chain of command like in terms of um, uh, his relationship, for example, with Robert E. Lee? Um, or, uh, or or the political figures running uh, the Confederate government? Uh, Bullock, Bullock did not hold a military rank. He was a civilian. The minute you get into being an, an officer, he used to be a United States Navy officer for a very long time, and he had re slightly retired. So he knew Lee, and I assume he was relatively intimate with Jefferson Davis. I mean, this was an important mission. Uh, I don't think I think he probably met him. Uh, he, his his only the guy he reported to was was Mallory, the Secretary of the Navy. That's that's uh, he, that, and Mallory would have discussed it with Davis and and the rest of them. 
but uh, you know, Bullock, Bullock answered only to one man, and that was was Mallory. And and remember, the the speed of communication across the Atlantic was six or seven weeks. There was no transatlantic cable. Ships went missing all the time. So Bullock was essentially left on his on his own you know, for uh, for for four years or so, do, doing whatever he could to 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 continue the mission. So it was um, you know, he was essentially a kind of a kind of a lone wolf who so he was in liverpool he had one he had a lot of his own resources where, where did he live uh he just he just lived in liverpool he lived uh, i mean he wasn't a rich man himself he just lived in a rather small terrace house in suburban liverpool um but he would go to work at, at the the headquarters um of uh, uh fraser trenham downtown near the how how aware were bullock and dudley of each other Oh, they were—they were very aware of each other. Um, they loathed each other. Uh, I mean, they—you know—the uh, the the U.S. Uh, consulate where Dudley was based was, you know, not very—you uh, know, just kind of a couple of blocks away from from the operations of Fraser Trenum. Um, they were constantly watching each other and shadowing each other and well, shadow boxing, I guess. Um, con- you know, so they they knew each other perfectly well um you know at one point uh, bullock uh, sorry dudley uh, sorry bullock manages to insert uh, a, a, an agent of his into uh into the law office of, of dudley's lawyer and so he's beginning he's seeing exactly what what dudley's up to you know way before uh dudley even knows really um so again it was again very very cat and mouse but yeah they were very aware of each other well, and rather dudley, than cat and mouse, it's lion and fox so I mean, given obviously the outcome of the Civil War and the fact that a Confederate Navy was never really built, should we assume that Dudley won this spy war? Yeah, and it's part of the the phrase "Lion and the Fox," which I think comes from Petrarch, uh, uh, Petrarch, uh, which is where the where the lion's skin does not fit, you must patch it out with the foxes. Uh, and what what that means is is that. Dudley goes to Liverpool as a kind of this naive consul. He wasn't supposed to be the head of the most important intelligence posting in the world. It was just by accident that it happened uh, when Bullock arrives. He's just supposed to be the boring guy stamping documents. That's all he was supposed to do. Um, and so he's very naive. He's this naive and gullible fellow, uh, very well-meaning, idealistic. But he learns when he's after years of tangling with the likes of, of, of uh, Bullock that he's got to learn to be a fox himself. And so he does, and he outwits. Uh, it's a very Machiavellian type yes. and a very Machiavellian theme. Of course, Machiavelli, Machiavelli was very familiar with Petrarch and uh, picked up the idea of the lion and the fox in some of his work. So the book itself and the struggle is is political in in your mind. Um. Yes, I mean, they're in again, Machiavellian sense in terms here. of scheming and smartness and power and intrigue. Well, yes, it, it's not just a duel or rivalry between two two spies. I mean, there's there's a lot riding on this. You know, if the if the Confederates did manage to uh, con, uh, complete all their plans, like getting all these iron, brand new modern ironclads out, I mean, they would have just they would have been able to sink the entire U.S. Navy. Um, uh, trying to enforce the blockade. If that happens, all the bets are off. And at some point, Britain just says, okay, we're starting with the Confederacy and you guys can have, and we're going to support autonomy or something like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's a game, a small, a small personal game. That's I, I mean, if this had been conducted in France, Alex, my guess is that given French love of armaments and 
arming other countries, they would have supplied both countries with navies and or, or the navies from their own shipyards. Why didn't the British just say, fine, you can each have navies, buy ships from us and we'll make money through if they were such free traders? <laughs> well, it's a good question, I, but I think they didn't want to do that simply because of the the foreign, what's known as the Foreign Enlistment Act, which is something that was a, was a, a law put around in 1819 to stop British volunteers going to go fight in uh, in South American wars of liberation, and everyone had completely forgotten about this act until until the Civil War, when it's also used, uh, you know, as a way that you know as as the law it, it bans uh, anyone supplying weapons or ships uh, or anything like that to, to combatants. Uh, so how high uh, within the British government did this issue get to? Um, as, as Bullock and Dudley, the fox and the lion, are jousting, if that's the right word, in Liverpool, trying to figure out how, on, how not to build a, a Confederate Navy, did, did the issue get discussed at a very high level in, in the British government or in the British military? Uh, not so much in the British military, but in the British government, certainly this was at the highest uh, cabinet level. Um, you know, uh, Russell, Earl Russell, uh, was the foreign secretary, and, he, you know, he was kept constantly apprised by Charles Francis Adams, who was the U.S. minister to London, essentially the, the ambassador, uh, the Dudley, the union guy, would report to about what was going on in Liverpool all the time, and uh, uh, Adams would try and pressure Russell to crack down on this rather obvious, uh, you know, uh, gaming of the Foreign Enlistment Act. And, and as I said uh, in the book, uh, uh, Bullock works out a very clever way of evading the Foreign Enlistment Act. He's, he finds a, a hole in it the, the, uh, that you could basically sail a, a fleet through, and nobody else had come up with it. Um, so, yeah, so it reaches the very highest levels of the government, and it's talked about in cabinet, and, and again, it, it's, it's, this is a, a, a huge potential problem. At one point, the Navy problem uh, you know, it comes very close uh, at the end of 1861 to to actually a war erupting between the United States and, and Britain over the over the Trent, um, which was when uh, uh, American sailors boarded a, a British ship yes. that was carrying Confederate uh, envoys. So, I mean, this is a it's a tricky, delicate uh, subject that they're that they're trying to work out, and they don't like the fact that Bullock is conducting this kind of. Why don't they just throw Bullock out? Uh, because he's very clever, and and they try to uh, several times, and you know the, Dudley manages to get all these affidavits and and eyewitness statements and all this kind of stuff, and they go to court and all this kind of stuff, and he just keeps on outfoxing them, so to speak, um, you know, because you know according to he was following religiously, you know, the 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 rules according to the Foreign Enlistment Act, it, there was just a, a hole in them, so. You know that was that was just how it worked. But in the end, Dudley won this clandestine uh, yes. war. Uh, Is that fair? Yeah, because you know, for the first couple of years he was on his back foot, being pushed back constantly by by Bullock. Um, but again, the the Emancipation Proclamation transforms the the greater um, transforms the you know sort of the greater context here. And you know, so Dudley gets a second wind. And you know he pushes forward, and again over the next couple of years, the, the Confederates are on the on the losing on the losing side. Uh, but Dudley doesn't leave it there because at the end of the war, 
Bullock gets away with it. He just gets away with it scot-free. Nobody comes after him. Um, and he sort of negotiates a, uh, that's kind of a, a you know, get out of jail free card with the American authorities, um, despite causing enormous amounts of losses. Uh, his, the ships that he commissioned and, and sent out like the Alabama and the, and the Florida and, and so on, um, that sunk dozens and dozens of American ships. Um, but so Dudley continues to fight 10 or 12 years later, uh, the, sort of the last round of what's known as the Alabama Claims uh, Tribunal in, in Geneva, which the Americans essentially sued the British for, for breaking their own rules and supplying these ships. And so they, they managed to extract a colossal sum from the British government. So there's a kind of a happy ending to this whole thing. And, and you know, so that, that's what it's got. It's this kind of coda. To this, no, this I'm um, rereading Paul Johnson's History of the American People. He has a very sort of Johnsonian section on the Civil War, very interesting section. And he basically says that the, the South was so inefficient that inevitably they were going to lose. So I guess if, if he was looking at your book, The Lion and the Fox, I mean, he'd be very interested in the story. But he'd say there was never really any outcome apart, any outcome, any conceivable outcome apart from the, the South losing. Uh, are there counterfactuals in your mind, uh, Alex? Had, uh, yes, I don't, I don't had think... uh, Bullock successfully built a, a Confederate Navy? Might the whole history of North America be different? Uh, I, I, I certainly believe so. The naval war is, is always comes plays second fiddle to the land war. You know, it's always Lee versus Grant. Um, but the naval war is just as, as important uh, in terms of international diplomacy. Um, I think, you know, in some, I think the, the basic, uh, uh, you know, the way this would have happened is if it had the blockade, the Union blockade been broken and cotton flowed freely, and these ships got out and, um, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. I, you know, personally think that, you know, the South could have arranged, especially at the low points of the North, could have arranged some kind of compromise armistice, uh, which again, remember the South doesn't have to win. It, it, it just has to not lose to win. Uh, and that means is that if you can just fight the North to exhaustion or boredom or, uh, uh, you know, or disgusted at, at the losses at places like Antietam, then you can you can try and extract a, a negotiated peace in which you'll say yes over the next um, four or forty or fifty years we'll will eradicate slavery and you have really no intention of doing it um, and in, in but and will and will be granted autonomy from Washington so I think that that's the that's the big bigger strategic picture and so yeah I, I do think that had this had this come off and a few things fell the Confederates way even with their industrial inefficiency and uh, you know the lack of trains and railroads and industrial factories and so on you know you just have to fight the union to 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 to, to um you know a state of of, of uh, stalemate and you kind of get most of what you want it's certainly a consequential story the lion and the fox two rival spies and the secret plot to build a confederate army it's by alexander rose one of america's leading 19th century historians You'll be familiar with a lot of his work, Washington Spies, Men of War, um, Empires of the Sky. So he's a much published author. Congratulations, Alex, on the new book. It's out next week. Everyone should order it. Uh, military buffs, Civil War buffs, people interested in the remarkable story of the Civil War. 
need to get it. So congratulations, uh, Alex, on the new book. Uh, what else would you suggest people read? What else are you enjoying, Civil War or otherwise? Uh, well, I tend to sort of uh, not read about the subject I've just mm. I'm writing about. Or Very wise, about. I think. Uh, you know, I have the, I have this Substack where, where I did called Spionage, where I do cases of historical espionage. Um, you know, mm. sort of old, old world spy stories. Um, so right now, I'm just reading this new book that just came out, just for research purposes. Uh, you know, this book by Benny Morris on Sidney Riley. You know, the Ace of Spies, um, which you'll you'll be happy to see is is very uh, thin, mm. and uh, and just on. Uh, Taking a love of 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 travel log, you know, forgotten travel logs and interesting sort of memoirs from many centuries past. It's this fellow called Minucci, a Venetian who ended up in India mm. uh, in the 17th century and wrote this wonderful uh, set of of memoirs about living under the last of the great Mughal emperors. You know, the one of the uh, Aurangzeb. Um, so he's almost like the, you know, he's like a he's like a sort of an Italian Samuel Pepys, uh, mooching around. India in the 17th century. Really interesting book. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of thing I find I, I'm, you know, I'm tending to do right now. 